Join me, if you will, in reading the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. So the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, the temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in everyone. May God add a blessing to this reading of the text and cause it to be the inspired word for us today. So this text is often referred to as the cleansing of the temple when Jesus comes in and uh, starts turning everything over and destroying the place. I thought about doing that to the communion table just to make a point, but Glenda works so hard and everyone works so hard. (laughs) I guess I won't do that. This is one of those rare texts that actually appears in all four Gospels, uh, uh, one of those stories which we call a, uh, uh, you know, which goes through all four of them. And, uh, you know, there's not very many of those. John kind of stands alone in a lot of his storytelling. I will say, in the Synoptic Gospels, it comes at the end uh, during Holy Week, during the last week of Jesus' life. Here, it's at the beginning of Jesus's. Uh, Jesus's work in John. John puts it there. And I think John does that to, to separate out the reason Jesus was arrested and crucified. Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, it has a lot to do with the cleansing of the temple that kind of got everyone's attention and got Jesus arrested and crucified. John wants to make it really about something else, and it was the raising of Lazarus in John that kind of becomes a catalyst for uh, Jesus' arrest. John has an, a, the agenda of dividing a line between those who follow Christ and, and uh, the rest of the world that has rejected him, and Jesus' foretelling of the resurrection by raising Lazarus kind of ticks off the the aristocracy of the time. So that's kind of why we're finding it here. Um, so, but why, why does the temple need to be cleansed in the first place? Why is it due for a cleansing? Well, uh, the, you've heard me talk about this before, but the, the temple was really, for the Jewish people at the time, it was how, control, how people controlled the access to God. 
Of course, that wasn't the original intention. The original intention was that it would facilitate a deep and intimate relationship and would facilitate reconciliation between God and God's people. But over time, all of the rituals and the ceremonies and the obligations that happened in the temple became an instrument that was used by the domination system of the time and the the Roman domination system and the Jewish aristocracy, the hierarchy there, that had become corrupt. Good, God-loving Jews were required to make sacrifice at the temple. Like I say, this is how people were reconciled to God. And without those sacrifices, without bringing those things to the temple, people were estranged from God, according to the customs of the time. And this this involved buying an animal, which is what they were doing in the marketplace. That's what they were doing in the temple, is selling these animals to be sacrificed. So it it involved buying an animal. If you were poor, you bought a dove. If you were rich, you bought a ram or a goat or a sheep or something and uh, showed off with that. And uh, then you would go in there. Not only that, but you had to bring money half a shekel. Everyone was, every adult male was required to pay a tax of half a shekel to the temple uh, every year. And, but there was a prohibition in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, against graven images. And so you couldn't bring Roman coin into the temple because Roman coins had the picture of Caesar on them. That's another story we'll get to later on in this uh, text, but uh, <laughs> but the Roman coin had Caesar's a graven image of Caesar on the coin, so you had to exchange it for Tyrian uh, coinage, which didn't have any pictures on it; it had something else. So you would exchange that. That's what those money exchangers were doing in the temple, where they were providing this required service. of exchanging money and selling animals, unblemished animals, by the way. So if you hauled your ram from, you know, Galilee or something, by the time it got there, it was no longer unblemished because it's a hard road. So they had to get them locally. So they were providing a service. So clearly this is not, what's going on here is not a, uh, Jesus isn't mad that people are selling stuff in the temple. That was just part and parcel with what was going on there. There seems to be something bigger going on. Of course, I, I forgot to mention that when they, you exchange your money for, for Roman money, for Tyrian money, of course, there was a little, a little fee attached to it. So people were making a lot of money off of this idea. And the corruption of the house of Annas, now at this time under the control of Caiaphas, the high priest, was notorious. Their object was not to facilitate reconciliation between God's people and God. They were there to satisfy their greed for money and for power. The high priesthood at this time, who were all appointed, by the way, by Herod, uh, and were in league, in collaboration with Rome. It was all... It was all part of undergirding the Roman domination system by giving it religious legitimacy. <clears throat> so, Rome appoints Herod, and Herod who's, who's a friend of Caesar, 
And Herod appoints uh, the high priest, who's a friend of Herod. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the corruption just seems to happen naturally. And these folks who were in charge saw this opportunity to make a lot of money and gain a lot of power over the people. uh, With such corruption in the temple, the rituals and the ceremonies had become pretty empty and without heart. People came rending their clothes, but not their hearts. And because of the ritual had become the point at this time, not the vehicle for getting close to God. It was just about doing the empty rituals over and over again. And for the high priesthood, it became about collecting taxes and tithes and fattening their own pocket. The prophets warned us about making a show of things while not attending to what was really important. Hosea 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Isaiah 1.11 says this, What is it? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Isaiah 1.11 When the people have gotten away from the whole point of those rituals, when it no longer facilitated an actual relationship, of course, it wasn't the people's fault. I'm, I'm blaming as Jesus did, the leadership, the folks who, the corruption of the temple leadership, who used religiosity to keep people down and to keep control of, of the world around them and to make a lot of money. And when that happens, it really calls into question the validity of the rituals and the things that went on there. And just like the prophets, Jesus questioned whether they're Burnt offerings were even valid at this point. In the face of such corruption in the dwelling place of God, Jesus incited a riot in the hope of justice, in the hope of free access, ultimately, to God again. And when he declared that he could raise the temple in three days, they had no concept that he was talking about the temple of his own body, the body of Christ, which we celebrate today and in which we see and experience the presence of God. In the same way, we also are a dwelling place for God. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples and the Holy Spirit who, it is, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Uh, here's where I'm going with all of this. Jesus went in and cleansed the temple in the hopes of freeing up access to God, drawing attention to the corruption of the temple. And I don't know if you're like me, but my temple use a little cleansing from time to time. <laughs> there are many times... Uh, in my day, in my week, in my months, in my years, when my temple could use some tables overturned and some 
whips made of cords coming at me once in a while. There are times indeed when I feel that self-righteous, opportunistic, self-absorbed, hypocritical Pharisee begin to take over my temple and make it less a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God and more like, as the synoptics call it, a den of thieves. There are attitudes and behaviors in, in all of us that make it impossible for God to dwell here at times. We all have things in our heart that lure us to our most base instincts and draw us further away from a genuine encounter with God and the life-changing interactions that we need. That when it is time for Jesus to show up and start overturning tables and upsetting the whole scheme of things. And you know, I've noticed that there are two ways that people kind of react and deal with upturned tables in the, that Jesus leaves behind in our own temple, our own hearts. Uh, people sometimes get mad about it and get defensive and start blaming everyone else and start blaming God and get, just get mad at God and start shoving God away. How dare you come in and start disrupting my life? How dare you make me feel bad? How dare you do all this kind of stuff and we start to shove God away? But the other reaction is that people take stock. Start to realize the blessing of that upturned table chaos and upheaval in their lives. You know, uh, uh, Jesus comes in and stirs everything up, and sometimes at the time it feels like utter mayhem. And we don't know what, which way's what. Then sometimes looking back, we can see how God is working us through those very difficult times. And when we come out the other end, we realize, wow, this is, this is much better than I ever could have imagined. Thank you, God, for doing the hard work of stirring up things in my own temple and turning over tables. You know, we've been hearing a lot about people in Hollywood and people in politics who've been, who've been, uh, whose lives have been completely shaken up because uh, their chickens have come home to roost, as it were. People who've done pretty heinous, awful things and... They got away with it for a long time. Now all of a sudden, they're starting to get called on it. And, you know, it's clear that many of them needed to have their temple cleansed a long time ago. And some take the first route of denial and blaming others and discrediting everything and just, you know trying to maintain that wall of deceit and corruption. Trying to put on the, the illusion that there really isn't a need for um, to upturned tables in their, in their temple. That illusion of righteousness. Uh, and, it, and it comes in and, and starts to, when it comes in and starts to destroy their lives. In fact, Roy Moore is begging for money right now so that he can continue to castigate 
a woman who has alleged that he raped her when he, she was 14 years old. And he's running out of money for all of his lawyers. He's, he's taken the first route, it seems to me. Others seem to take responsibility and begin to rebuild their lives. They take that hard look and they, and they realize, wait a minute, I've been, I've been fooling myself. And sometimes, sometimes they come to that just between them and God and, and they, they begin to, to do the hard work of, of turning things around. They confess their sins. They, they, they figure out how to do better. Sometimes those things are forced on them like these folks in Hollywood when they get caught. When we get caught. When we find ourselves just trapped in a lie and we finally have to be honest. Finally have to do the hard work of looking maybe someone we love in the eye and confessing something or we're looking around and realizing that the things they've been doing are just not right. Doing that hard work of saying, God, I've been wrong. I need to go in a completely different different direction. And maybe that means a complete life upheaval. Yet when Jesus is at the heart of that, when Christ comes to us and, and is the architect of that kind of upheaval, when we can see that God is, is calling us to our highest selves, and when we can see that God is pointing us to that full and abundant life that only comes through living a life worthy of Christ, then we can see how it's going to come out the other end. We're going to live a life that we never could have possibly imagined. One does not need to be a Harvey Weinstein to have a corrupt temple. We all find ourselves at cross purposes with God once in a while. We, ha- we all have times when our motivations are selfish and self-absorbed. When our piety is for show and not really a desire to get close to God. But when we sp- and we spend a lot of energy trying to hide that reality from God, from others, and maybe even ourselves. Well, this morning, as we continue this journey of Lent, it is our opportunity to let Jesus stand in our temple and look around and see what tables need to be overturned and what corruption needs to be driven out. I invite each of us to reflect just for a moment on this question. What tables need to be overturned in my life so that I might be indeed a dwelling place for God. I'm going to pray in just a moment and then we're going to sing a hymn in preparation of communion. You should have... Kelly, do you have more of those slips? Kelly will give you one if you don't have one. But if you have... uh, You should have a a little prayer slip. Uh, I want you to answer that question. What tables need to be overturned in your temple so that you might be a, a dwelling place for God? And uh, during communion, we're going to invite you during communion, if you like, you can uh, come over here and put your 
uh, prayer in the prayer wall that we have erected for Lent. Also, we're going to do communion a little differently. We're all going to come up the center aisle, and I, because we're such a small group, I thought it would be fun if I got to serve the bread, and Glenda's going to assist me by serving the wine, so we'll, we'll do that all together. Let us pray. Our loving and gracious God, we are grateful for this opportunity we have to open our temple doors and let you in and invite you to come and seek out that corruption, those things that are preventing us from being the dwelling place of God that you've called us to be. And may we eagerly accept our own responsibilities for those things that you are pointing to and drawing our attention to. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see. May we follow you to a new way of being. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.